Well, today it is my great, great joy, special day, special day for me and our church uh, to have with us one of my heroes of the faith. Everybody is impacted by people. Praise God for the work that he does, but God chooses to work through people. And apart from my parents and my sweet wife, there are a handful of people that God has used to impact your pastor. If you like some of the ways I am, they can be attributed to these people. If you don't, you can blame these same people. (laughs) So there you go. Uh, Because every person who is being used by God and has a passion, a certain, is standing on the shoulders of someone. And this morning, one of those someones is here with us. Pastor C.J. Mahaney uh, has been one of the top people on my list that has impacted me. And you don't have to know someone for them them to impact you. We only met in the last couple years face-to-face for the first time. But I've been impacted by him, his life, his writing, his speaking, his leadership, his heart for the church, his heart for his wife, his heart for his kids, his perseverance, his humility, his courage. There are certain people that you don't have to get that close to them to see there's something there. And I was sitting in my basement in 1997. We were a church plant. How many of you were there in 1997? Yeah, both of you. Okay, thank you. (laughs) Thanks for still being here. We were meeting at Turkey Foot Middle School. And I'm sitting in my bedroom. This is the church office where I answer the phone. Hello, Grace Fellowship. And a flyer came across my desk called A Passion for God's Glory. Now, I was reformed, doctrines of grace, sovereignty of God, God elects, but I'm passionate. I want to be alive. Let's let's sing like Jesus is still risen, right? So I'd go to places that had sound doctrine, but they acted so dead. And then I'd just scoot over towards charismatic places because I enjoyed the life, but I put up with stupid things they would say that were not doctrinal. And I said, wouldn't it be wonderful if these two rivers would, would mesh? I went that first year all by my lonesome to that conference And I was taken. I was like, this is it. This is what, I'm I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, but he uses people and ministries. I thought, this is what I've been looking for. Sound doctrine married with passion and life. And I I just got everything that I could. And uh, by God's grace, uh, God has used C.J. Mahaney not just to plant a church there in Gaithersburg, Covenant Life, and to see it grow and to make disciples... But from that, they began to write music. We've sung so many of their songs. They've written books. Uh, We've used CJ's book, Cross-Centered Life. I give it out like a doctor gives out penicillin. Just How many of you have read Cross-Centered Life? Oh, my goodness. Yes, look at that. We use Why Small Groups to train our small group leaders. That's from Sovereign Grace. Uh, CJ's book on humility. There's a lot of books that are on humility is the best thing in writing because he doesn't just say, oh, my goodness, don't be prideful. We, get, we got it. The Bible can tell you that. It's practical. It says, here's practical, intentional things you could do in your life to be killing pride and be cultivating humility. It is excellent. So I've been impacted by, by the ministry and by CJ in so many ways. CJ embodies a love for Christ, a love for people, a love for the church, and a love for sound doctrine that is rare today. And so CJ, thank you for embodying that, for being committed to that. Right now, CJ is serving in our neighborhood. So it's it's wonderful. He's in Louisville now. So he is the senior pastor of Sovereign Grace Church in Louisville. CJ is married to Carolyn. They have three married daughters, one son, 12 grandchildren. 
So CJ, come and bring God's word and help me welcome Pastor CJ Mahaney. That is humbling. Thank you. Mm. Brad, thank you. Uh, Very kind and humbling and meaningful. Thank you. Honored to be here. Honored. So eager to meet you. Feel like because I know your pastor, to some degree I know you. And to be with your pastor is to hear about you and his love for you. So this for me is just a day that I would love to unfold very slowly as I have the privilege to be with you, uh, the privilege to learn from you, and at this point, the uh, humbling privilege of serving you with God's word. So thank you. Please turn in your Bibles to the gospel according to Mark. The gospel according to Mark. And our attention this morning will be devoted to verses 45 through 52. And I now have the privilege of reading God's word as I have this privilege. Let us all be leaning forward in anticipation, filled with expectation that God is eager to draw near to us through the reading and proclamation of his word. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. CJ, yes. What Mark, chapter 6. Verse... Oh, you didn't get the chapter? Let's just start all over again. My joy to read it all over again. Please turn in your Bibles to the gospel. According to Mark chapter 6. And thank you, Brad, for bringing that to my attention. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves. 
But their hearts were hardened. It has become my favorite book about sports. After I finished reading this particular book, I so enjoyed this book that I began to read it again. It's, it's that good. Its title, The Boys in the Boat, Nine Americans and Their Epic Quest for Gold at the 1936 Berlin Olympics. I'm going to let author Daniel James Brown describe the origin of the book for you. He writes, this book was born on a cold, drizzly, late spring day when I clambered over the split rail cedar fence that surrounds my pasture and made my way through wet woods to the modest frame house where Joe Rance lay dying. I knew only two things about Joe when I knocked on his daughter Judy's door that day. I knew that in his mid-70s, he had single-handedly hauled a number of cedar logs down a mountain Then hands split the rails and cut the posts and installed all 2,224 linear feet of the pasture fence I had just climbed over. A task so Herculean, I shake my head in wonderment whenever I think about it. And I knew that he had been one of nine young men from the state of Washington, farm boys, fishermen, and loggers who shocked both the rowing world and Adolf Hitler by winning the gold medal in eight-oared rowing at the 1936 Olympics. Now, Mr. Brown goes on to most effectively and eloquently tell their story. It was actually so well written that even though I knew they won the gold medal, I was still nervous at the end that they wouldn't. (laughs) So the book not only describes this unique and compelling story, the book actually introduces those like myself who are largely ignorant about the sport of rowing to the rigors of rowing. So listen as Mr. Brown describes what's required in rowing. Competitive rowing, he writes, is an undertaking of extraordinary beauty preceded by brutal punishment. Unlike most sports, which draw primarily on particular muscle groups, rowing makes heavy and repeated use of every muscle in the body. And rowing makes these muscular demands not at odd intervals, but in rapid sequence over a protracted period of time, repeatedly and without respite. Physiologists, in fact, have calculated that rowing a 2,000-meter race, the Olympic standard, takes the same physiological toll as playing two basketball games back-to-back, and it exacts that toll in about six minutes. The common denominator, whether in the lungs, the muscles, or the bones, is overwhelming pain. Rowing is perhaps the toughest of sports. The twelve disciples were the original boys in the boat. They are the canonized version. And their experience of rowing in Mark 6 is a part of redemptive history. And though these boys weren't aware of it that evening as they hurriedly embarked from shore at the Savior's command, their experience that evening was an intentional part of their training and preparation for future apostolic ministry. On this evening, they would be reminded, they would be reminded of the unique pain of rowing, not from competition, but for the purpose of survival. And they, they would never forget They would never forget their encounter with the Son of God this particular evening 
as they attempted to row across the Sea of Galilee. And this all happened. This all happened so that we might encounter the Son of God this morning. All because of what took place with these boys in this boat. Three points that I want to draw to your attention, all I trust drawn from this text. First, the setting, verses 45 and 46. The setting, verse 45. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. Why immediately? Why immediately and why did he make the disciples get into the boat? Why why the apparent rush? This this urgency present suggests a concern or a crisis of some kind that actually Mark doesn't explain, but John in his gospel helps us to understand in his parallel account of this particular event. Actually, one cannot understand verse 45 apart from understanding the previous creative miracle in verses 30 through 44, the multiplication of the loaves and fish. And in John's gospel, John informs us of the following. This took place just after the previous miracle. John writes, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him, Jesus, by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So after the previous creative miracle of multiplication, Jesus perceives that there is a most concerning messianic excitement and fervor in the air. There there is a revolutionary groundswell he perceives. The crowds numbering 5,000 men and no doubt thousands more women and children wanted to make him their king. They wanted to make him their king right then and right there. They, they wanted a political and military revolution, a political and military revolution in opposition to Roman oppression, and they had chosen Jesus as the one to lead them. This, however, was not the purpose for which Jesus had come. No, no, he came as the suffering servant. No, he's making his way to a hill called Calvary. And he did not want his disciples influenced by this contagious atmosphere because these boys at this time were clueless as to his mission. And he knew that the 12 would have been enthusiastic about this proposal. They would have been supportive of this action to make him king. So Jesus acts immediately and decisively to separate his disciples from this scene, lest they get caught up in this messianic fervor of the multitude. So he immediately makes them get into the boat to sail across the Sea of Galilee. By the way, if I were one of the disciples, I would not have been good to go with this. I would have said something like, hey, listen, I don't know about the other fellas, but I still haven't recovered from the near-death experience the last time you told us to set sail in chapter 4. And (laughs) my concern is only heightened as well because you aren't coming this time, it appears. So I would have voiced my concern. Your Bible would have been a lot (laughs) Your Bible would have been a lot longer had I been a disciple. (laughs) He immediately makes them get in the boat. And then 
he returns, notice at the end of verse 45, to dismiss the crowd. He he disperses the crowd and he does so peacefully. Now, folks, this, this would be no easy task. This would be no easy task given their heightened level of excitement and intent. And I would have loved to have been present to observe his skillful, authoritative display of leadership in dispersing and dismissing this crowd. And after dismissing the crowd in verse 46, he went up to the hills to pray. And that brings us to point two, the crisis, verses 47 through 50, the crisis. As the disciples attempt to proceed to their destination, they encounter a strong headwind. There's a storm that impedes their progress. Now, it's not a, it's not a life-threatening storm. It's not similar to the one they experienced in chapter 4. But the wind, the wind is most definitely formidable. Their progress is minimal. And the rowing is obviously quite painful. The NIV says they were straining at the oars because the wind was against them. And this goes on for hours. Now Mark informs us that Jesus saw them in their distress in verse 48. And eventually he makes his way to them during the fourth watch of the night, which is somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m. So once again, yet again, Jesus is moved with compassion towards his disciples. And this moment and this event, they are part of his intentional training of the 12. So he comes to them and he comes to them walking on the water to them. And this miracle is, without a doubt, the centerpiece of the story. Actually, Jesus is always the centerpiece of the story. Jesus is always the main character of the story. Comes to them walking on the sea. And then, and then we come to a phrase which, which initially strikes us as odd, strange. It's the end of verse 48. Did you notice it? He meant to pass by them. He meant to pass by them. I mean, what, 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 whatever could that mean? I mean, and, I mean, surely he's come to help them, not walk by them. I mean, was, was his intent really simply to walk by them? Hey, fellas. I mean, was that, was that his intent? I don't think that was his intent. He had no intention of passing by them. He had every intention of helping them. Actually, this phrase, he meant to pass by them, it actually informs us about the significance of what's going down here. Because the phrase assumes a familiarity with the Old Testament. This phrase is actually an echo from the Old Testament. This phrase is informed by its usage in the Old Testament. And it actually arrives in this particular account with all the force of its usage in the Old Testament. Signifying the revelation of God himself. His commentary, Donald English notes, one remarkable miracle, the previous one, the multiplication of the loaves and fish, is followed by an even more outstanding one. The phrase he meant to pass by them, it is a deliberate identification with how God revealed himself in the Old Testament. 
Mark is alerting us. Mark is informing us that this miracle, this miracle is a manifestation of the transcendent Lord who will pass by the disciples, listen, just as God passed by Moses. And just listen as I refresh your memory of that particular event. Moses said, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen. Oh, Jesus meant to pass by them. Jesus meant to reveal himself to them as God the Son. He meant to reveal the glory of God to them. By coming to them in this way, Jesus, he's, he's doing something that only God can do. Only God walks on the sea. We're informed of this in Psalm 77, in the book of Job chapter 9. Job describes the transcendence of God with these words. Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. So the God who passed by Moses, the transcendent one, is passing by the disciples. And he is revealing himself to them as God the Son. So this act is intentional and it is intentionally one of divine self-revelation. He is doing what only God can do. He is displaying the glory of God to his disciples and he is doing so in a unique way. For when the Lord passed by Moses, Moses could only see his back and still live. This passing by would be unique for Jesus was meant to be seen and he meant for them to see his face, not simply his back. He meant for them to behold his glory. This commentary, David Garland notes, Jesus walking on the water to his disciples is a revelation of the glory he shares with the Father. Jesus is not pulling off a staggering visual stunt to amaze his friends. Rather, the miracle attests That God himself has visited us in the flesh. Oh, he meant to pass by them. And he meant to identify himself with how God revealed himself in the Old Testament. He meant to display the glory of God to them. The disciples don't just see God's back. No, they see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. However, notice their reaction. Verse 50, they all saw him and were terrified. The sight of Jesus walking on the sea terrifies them. They thought 
It was a ghost. They cried out. They were terrified. Which brings us to point three. The compassion. His compassion. Verses 50 to 52. Oh, listen, one thing you cannot miss, one thing we must not miss in the midst of this extraordinary miracle is Jesus' care for his disciples. They were terrified, but note, note in verse 50, they were terrified, but note, but immediately he spoke to them. They were terrified, but immediately, immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. Actually, his compassion for them has been evident all along. Notice in verse 48, he saw that they were making headway painfully. They they were never out of his sight. They couldn't see him, but he never lost sight of them. And he was no doubt praying for them them. And then in verse 48, he came to them in their distress. And then he revealed himself to them. And then when they were terrified, he immediately comforted them and got into the boat with them. And the wind ceased. Listen, this is no imaginary superhero. This is the son of God. The wind and the water knew who he was. This is the Son of God displaying yet again His compassion. It's just a wonderful picture of His care for them. And it's also a wonderful picture of His care for us. His care for us in the midst of our storms is no different. He saw them. They were never out of His sight. And we are never out of his sight. He prayed for them. He ever lives to make intercession for us. He came to them and revealed himself to them. He has come to us and revealed himself to us through the proclamation of the gospel. He comforted them and he comforts us through his word, by the power of the Holy Spirit in the context of the local church. Listen, listen as J.C. Ryle describes the relevance of this particular scene to us. Ryle wrote, there are thoughts here of comfort for all true believers. Wherever they may be or whatsoever their circumstances, the Lord Jesus sees them. Oh, listen. The same eye which saw the disciples tossed on the lake is ever looking at us. We are never beyond the reach of his care. Our way is never hid from him. He may not come to our aid at the time when we like best, but he will never allow us to utterly fail. He that walked upon the water never changes. He will always come at the right time to uphold his people. Though he tarry, Let us wait patiently. Jesus sees us and will not forsake us. So let me ask you a question this morning. Where might you be feeling a strong headwind? 
Where, where do you feel a strong opposing wind as you attempt to row by grace in righteousness? Oh, given the size of this congregation, surely there are some present who feel, who feel weary. You are rowing, but you are tired. You are exhausted. You are weary of soul. You are aware of a strong, opposing headwind. You feel like you are making little, if any, progress. It's dark. You wonder, does God see? You wonder, does God care? What's your headwind this morning? Is it a besetting sin? It seems to be your frequent companion. Chronic illness. Child with a disability. Wayward teen. Financial hardship. You were recently laid off. Blindsided. Possibly opposition to your faith in the context of family or work. Maybe a friend betrayed you. Maybe your spouse left you. Or it might just be a prolonged spiritual dryness. Or maybe, maybe you're a mother of small children, multiple small children, so storms in some form await you each and every day. Listen, a strong headwind is wherever your hope has been deferred. Wherever your hope has been deferred and as a result your heart is sick, that indicates a strong headwind. You're tired. You're tired of rowing. You're tired of faithfully rowing. Oh, J.C. Ryle is right. There are thoughts of comfort here for you. Yes, there are. There are thoughts of comfort. He, he sees. He sees. Oh, yes, he sees and he cares and he prays and he will come and he will reveal himself and he will comfort and he will calm. And J.C. Ryle is wise to remind us, <laughs> very wise to remind us, he may not come to our aid at the time we like best. See, the Lord's timing here should be very instructive to us. He came about the fourth watch, 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. These boys have been rowing for hours. He had been watching them for hours. Rowing for hours, making headway painfully because of the wind. He's watching for hours. Listen, it would appear that Jesus let them experience the extremity of their need 
before he came to them. And so often, our experience is just no different. Listen, you're going you're gonna to discover, if you haven't already discovered, that God is often the God of the fourth watch. He, he specializes in arriving when? At the fourth watch. So, so if you find yourself rowing and weary of rowing and making so little progress, if you find yourself exhausted, wondering if he sees, wondering if he will come, well, let, let the wise words of Charles Spurgeon strengthen your heart as you row. Mr. Spurgeon would say to us this morning, Oh, for the grace, oh, for the grace to feel if we do not know when God will deliver us, then it is none of our business. Mrs. Virgin would say to us this morning, if God knows, that is enough. We are to follow him, not lead. We are to obey him, not prescribe. Your deliverance is near, but if it tarried, it will be a richer blessing. It's just a wealth of grace and wisdom in in that quote, reflecting obviously the wealth of grace and wisdom that we find in Scripture. Listen, when I am weary from rowing, when it is dark, when I am wondering if God sees, when I am doubting whether he cares, my temptation in that moment is to prescribe, not obey, Cease rowing, start prescribing, counsel him in my arrogance, lecture him, and sadly at times, even charge him. Don't you see? Don't you care? How many more days and weeks and months am I going to have to Before you come and deliver. My friend, I want to encourage you with all my heart this morning. Keep rowing. (laughs) Keep rowing. However, unlike the disciples, row expectantly. However tired, however weary, however exhausted, Put your hands back on those oars and start rowing again. Only this time, row with fresh expectation as a result of what we learn from this particular passage. Keep rowing, keep rowing. However, unlike the disciples, row in faith. For the disciples were not rowing in faith. They were not expecting him to come. And when he did come... They were terrified at what they observed. They were terrified. Listen, please don't misunderstand this. They were terrified when they should have trusted. It's not that they shouldn't have been terrified, but they should also have trusted. And Jesus expected them to trust him. He he expected them to perceive who he was. He expected them to respond appropriately to him. They were terrified. They were astounded, but they did not Trust him. And Mark describes why. Did you notice that phrase at the end of verse 52? For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. 
Moments before, hours before, they were present for that miracle, that creative miracle of multiplication. They were present for the miracle, but they failed to comprehend that the miracle pointed beyond itself to reveal the identity of Jesus. Oh, they marveled at the miracle. They were there. They were present. They were even a means. So there's no question. They marveled as this all went down. It was actually part of their training for Jesus to do this multiplication and then to put them in charge of distribution. You don't think they marveled? As the few loaves and fish were multiplied to feed thousands with baskets left over? You don't think these guys were giddy as they made their way through the crotch? This is unbelievable. We need some more over here. Be right back. No problem. See, you don't think that scene wasn't one of dramatic marveling? Oh, my. Oh, there's, there's no doubt. They marveled. But they missed the point of the miracle. Because the miracle revealed the identity of the miracle worker. So they missed the purpose and the point of the miracle. Revealing the identity of Jesus as God the Son. And that miracle, listen, it it, it wasn't simply to care for those who were hungry and had followed. No, that miracle was an intentional part of their training for future apostolic ministry. And that miracle was also preparatory for the storm. If they had understood the point and the purpose of the miracle of the loaves and the fish, then they would have responded differently as he walked on the water toward them in the storm. He revealed himself to them in the miracle of the loaves and fish so that their faith would be strengthened for the storm and the tests that awaited them. So this passage really does form a a challenge to us, a challenge for us to grow in faith. Our, our knowledge of the greatness and the graciousness and the faithfulness of God, our, our history, your personal history and your history as a church of the graciousness and the faithfulness of God, it is preparatory for storms. And it is meant to sustain us in the midst of our storms. The, the Lord expected them to grow in their trust of him. And he expects us to grow in our trust of him as well. Listen, everyone present this morning is, is either in the midst of a storm. You're either in the midst of a storm where, where, where the wind and the waves make rowing very painful and exhausting. Or if you're not presently in the midst of the storm, at some point, at some point in your life, you are going to notice dark clouds forming on the horizon of your life some point in your life, you, you will feel the wind begin to pick up. These passages are to prepare you for those moments, to prepare you for the strong headwind, to prepare you for the storms of trial and suffering that, that awaits each of us. And the Lord, the Lord expects us to trust him. Why? Well, because he has proven himself trustworthy. That's why. He is, listen, he is the sovereign God who reveals himself to us 
and reveals himself to us, especially in the storms. So he expects us to trust him through storms. And yet, oh my. And yet in this story, we also observe and perceive the patience of God. (laughs) The patience of God once again on full display as Jesus perseveres with his disciples, even though once again and yet again, they don't get it. Even though once again and yet again, they failed to trust him. He is patient with them. Notice, when they are terrified, he immediately says to them, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. What compassion. What patience. There's the complete absence of scolding here. He doesn't say, What what is it going to take for you dopes to trust me? Okay, What, What do I have to do? Have the previous six chapters of miracles not been enough for you idiots? What, what is it going to take? There's the complete absence of scolding. No, I tell you, the disciples' failure, it serves my soul. Oh my, as I study the Gospels, I, I, I find a certain comfort whew, and a certain refuge in the failure of the disciples. Their failure serves my soul. I, I recognize my face in this story, in the face of the disciples. Their, their failure serves my soul and their failure actually gives me hope because though I repeatedly fail, he forgives me. He forgives me and in my weakness, he continues to sanctify me and By his mysterious grace, he continues to deploy me in service. Actually, one of those amazing verses in this section is verse 53. When they had crossed over, the mission continues. (laughs) I mean, it would have been understandable, would it not, to read, and they crossed over, and he kicked them all out. And he chose 12 others. I mean, it just, it's, it's not like you could have faulted him if that's what he did in verse 53. Enough of this. It's been six chapters. Only have 10 left. <laughs> you, you, it's, it's, it's not like you would have argued with him as you read that. You thought, wow, yeah, incredibly patient up until now. But that's not what we read. No, they get to the other side. The mission continues. And actually, actually, we have even more. Listen, we have even more reason to trust him. We have even more reason to trust him in the midst of the storm because we, we have, oh, brothers and sisters, we have a clearer demonstration of his love than either the creative miracle of multiplication, loaves and fish, or this walking on the water. We have the cross. We have the cross. And actually Mark draws our attention to the cross in this story. You might've missed it. Might have missed it. Might have missed the reference to it. It's actually embedded in verse 46. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. He went up on the mountain to pray. Now, Mark is very intentional in the structure of his gospel. He's very purposeful. He's very strategic in his references to Jesus withdrawing to pray. There are just three times in Mark's gospel where we are informed that Jesus withdrew 
to pray. Now, quite obviously, these would not be the only times he prayed, but these were strategic times of prayer, and this is why Mark draws our attention to them. The first is in chapter 1, verses 35 through 39. At the outset of his ministry, as his fame began to spread because of his words and his works, he withdrew to pray. Second occasion, Mark chapter 6, right here, verse 45. This, this moment is the height of his popularity among the crowds. He withdraws to pray. Third and final time Mark will be drawing our attention, his withdrawal to pray is in the Garden of Gethsemane just prior to his arrest and his death. So in each case, his withdrawal to pray was in, listen, it was in a moment of crisis. It was a moment of crisis for Jesus. And so in each case, he withdrew to pray for a purpose. In each case, there was either a popular enthusiasm that was building among the crowds for him to fulfill their erroneous messianic expectations, or he was was confronting his impending suffering. So these are either moments of heightened popularity or imminent suffering. And in each case, in each case, there was a temptation to avoid the suffering And to avoid the cross. And in each case by withdrawing to pray. What's he doing? He is depending on the father. He is freshly strengthened by the father. He is affirming his obedience to the father. He has come to make his way to a hill called Calvary. To give his life on the cross as a ransom for many And when he withdraws to pray, he is reaffirming his calling to be the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, not a freedom fighter against Rome. So these are strategic times of prayer. They were to freshly affirm the purpose for which he came. This this particular time of prayer was to prepare him to endure the most Violent of storms. This wasn't the storm he primarily came to calm. No, no. This storm, the storm in Mark 4. No, they point to future storms. They point to a much greater storm. No, he, he would endure a storm like no other storm. The storm. Of God's righteous wrath against our sin. Oh no, that, that's, that he has withdrawn to pray so that he might avoid the temptation embedded in his heightened popularity so that he might freshly affirm that he has come to make his way to a hill called Calvary. Well, where he will endure the storm of God's wrath, the full fury of God's righteous wrath poured out upon him because of the weight of our sin. That's the storm he's come to still as our substitute. And that storm could only be stilled by his death. Not by a word, but by his death. 
so that we might be forgiven of our sins and freed from fear of future wrath. Because he endured the storm of God's wrath for us, listen, we do not have to fear any storm we face. And he has addressed the most serious of storms and calmed that storm by his substitutionary sacrifice on the cross. So because he endured that storm, we do not have to fear any storm. Because he endured that storm, you will be able to sing with the hymn writer John Newton, with Christ in the vessel, I smile at the storm. Let's pray. Well, Father, I have, I have no doubt that there are many present who arrived aware of a strong headwind. I have no doubt that there are numerous present who are aware of more than a headwind, but a severe storm. A headwind, a storm. There appears to be no abating. Previous appeals for cessation have not been answered to date. And these wonderful, faithful people, your people, they continue to row But Lord, I'm sure that a number would acknowledge they are tired, they are weary, it's dark. This has gone on for so long. Lord, I pray today that they would find comfort in these words. I pray they would be freshly strengthened. I pray they would realize afresh, you see, you see, they have never been out of your sight. You care. You're praying for them. You ever lived to make intercession for them. You've already come to them by revealing the gospel to them. And you have a divine purpose for this storm. And you will reveal yourself to them as sovereign and wise and good in the midst of this storm. Lord, give them faith and perseverance to wait, even if it's the fourth watch of the night. Lord, help all of us go from here, get back in our cars and cease prescribing to you. Instead, gladly obeying you and entrusting the timing of your intervention, fulfilling of your purpose to you. And Lord, may there be just fresh joy in all our hearts as we contemplate, not primarily the strong headwind we might be experiencing or the severe storm we're enduring. Oh Lord, no, let let our gaze and our attention be drawn to the storm your son endured on our behalf, drinking the cup of wrath dry, not leaving a drop for us to drink so that we might be forgiven of all our sins and freed from fear of future wrath. May that reality put fresh faith and joy into our souls for the rowing that remains so that we might row in faith for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen.